0: Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Ram. My guest today is Munazi Manyandi. He is the executive director of the Dash Network, which exists to glorify God by providing care to one of the most vulnerable populations in America, namely people seeking asylums. Please welcome to the show the one and only Munazi Manyandi. You know, I get a lot of recommendations for people to be on the podcast, you know, and I immediately, you know, I'll, I'll check out what they're doing. And sometimes it just doesn't fit or just don't have space in my schedule. But man, I, I looked at uh, your ministry and I'm like, man, this looks really incredible. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Why, why don't you give us just a backstory about who you are and how you got into uh, the work you're doing now?
1: Thank you, Preston. I appreciate you having me on uh, on the show. Um The story of Daesh is is one that obviously is, um, you know, near and dear to my heart, um, you know, both as a believer, but also just, you know, uh, from a personal standpoint. Um, So my backstory in a, you know, in in a minute or so is I was born and raised in, in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe was a small country in Southern Africa. Um, and uh, you know, raised in a in a, in a Christian family. Uh, my mom, you know, even became you know uh, became a pastor when I was pretty young, and so you know grew up in the church. And um, you know, my mom also has a huge heart for the disadvantaged and you know the, the poor and people that you know have just been through really difficult life circumstances. And so. Grew up with my mom, you know, always, you know, ministering to people and trying to help, you know, those that were less fortunate. She was helping, you know, paying, you know, fees for kids to put kids through school you know, always helping, you know, widows, you know, to kind of find their feet after their husbands had passed away and things like that. And so I think just grew up believing that there was always a strong link between being a believer and actually, you know, looking out for, you know, those that might be disadvantaged. Um, I left Zimbabwe, you know, um, at, at the age of 18. So I went to, you know, school, you know, all the way through high school in Zimbabwe, and then got an opportunity to come to the U.S. to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a st- small state university um, in Missouri, just outside Kansas City, the University of Central Missouri. You know, really just went there because my older sister had gone there, um, you know, ahead of me. It was a real small state, small rural um, university where, you know, I tell people all the time, I don't, I think if I'd known how rural it was, you know, in advance, I probably would have tried to go somewhere else because I'd grown up in a big city and, you know, um, so that was an interesting experience. But I ended up loving uh, my my time at the University of Central Missouri. After, you know, finishing school, um, college, I, you know, moved back to Zimbabwe. I uh, met my wife, who's also from Zimbabwe. I actually met her in Texas, uh, which is where, where we are now. So, you know, came visiting, and uh, that's the first time we met. And uh, not long after that, we were, um, you know, getting engaged and getting married. But we moved back to Zimbabwe, um, you know, after um, I was done with uh, with college. We have three young kids, um, all of them born, um, you know, back home. It's been, you know, a really neat life, and the Lord's been, you know, real gracious to us. How my kind of story ties into you know uh, the work that we're doing with Dash is that I uh, you know I've always also had a you know pretty you know politically conscious uh, mind um, and uh, always been aware of what's going on around me and the impact of politics and things like that and I think to be honest having spent several years in the U.S. as well, there was lots of things about the democracy that the U.S. is that I liked and admired. And that was very different from, you know, kind of what I'd grown up, you know, uh, seeing. And so I think my, part of me, you know, wanted to see, you know, kind of that, that better brand of democracy um, in, in my home country, in Zimbabwe. And so that led to me getting involved, you know, with a group that eventually became, you know, um, an opposition party. And moved back to the U.S. Uh, about six years ago permanently uh, with my family uh, this time. As we, you know, we were kind of, you know, fig- figuring out options to be able to stay. We started to learn about what asylum, you know, was and kind of what options those, you know, um, you know, that that created potentially for for people that ended up in the U.S. that couldn't go back to their home country for whatever reason. You know, that led to, you know, me being invited to an event that was, you know, uh, being put, put, put together by dash, which is the ministry that I serve as executive director of now. And so I showed up there, um, you know, kind of heard a couple of, uh, asylum seekers telling their stories of what had happened in their home countries and the impact of, you know, kind of bad governance and politics in their home countries and how that had, you know, put them in the, in the government's crosshairs. And, uh, you know, they'd ended up fleeing and, you know, get to the U S and, you know, um, you know, started to, you know, the asylum process because it wasn't safe for them to return. And in doing so, they started to, you know, discover that while the U.S. government does have an asylum process, you know, that allows somebody to petition the government to say, look, you know, I've got evidence that shows that, you know, if I go back home, I I may not be safe. Mm. So I need, you know, I need your permission to, you know, be able to call the U.S. home permanently. So the government has this process that's been, you know, around for decades, um, and, uh, you know, when it works out and it's done right, you know, when you come out on the other end of it, you'll become a, you know, you, can, you you become a U.S. citizen. So, you know, great, you know, um, policy, in my opinion, and one that I hope, you know, is never abolished because, you know, we are meeting people all the time that need need help and, you know, need a fresh start. Mm-hmm. challenge that we have now in the U.S. is that immigration system is broken. I don't think, I think everybody knows that. Um, and it's extremely inefficient and there's a lot of conversation and sometimes it gets pretty political. um, you know, when people have these, have these conversations, but ultimately, um, what, what happens is it's a broken system where somebody that is a legitimate asylum seeker that is, you know, needing that refuge from the U S government, um, you know, gets here and maybe eventually gets granted the status but they end up being exposed to two or three years typically of potential homelessness because you can't work for, you know, for a couple of years when you're, you know, an asylum seeker. Um, and, you know, you also don't have any access to any you know, kind of government benefits or any kind of assistance. And so we've got this system in the country that says, hey, you know, if, if you really are in danger, you can come into the U.S. And as long as you can demonstrate that yours is a legitimate case, we can you know, allow you to call this place home permanently. But for the first two or three years, you know, good luck surviving because you know you shouldn't work illegally. But we also don't have any support for you. So, oh, wow. um, so that's essentially kind of you know the system that exists. And so Dash, you know, our our ministry Dash network was actually founded because you know our founder, you know, um, you know had a you know a couple of young women come up to her who were asylum seekers that didn't have a place to live and were essentially about to be homeless. And so she started to, you know, kind of help them out. In her, you know, you know took them home, took them home with her. And eventually, over time, more people called her to say, "Hey, you know, I need help, and I'm an asylum seeker." And 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 that eventually led to her approaching her church about starting a ministry. And the ministry eventually, in 2017, became a standalone, you know, ministry nonprofit. Um, and that was about the time that I, you know, came on board. And um, and so I've been serving as executive director of dash for, you know, um, since about then.
0: So fairly new. Oh, that's thank you. For that that's super clear. Can you give us a definition? Like, is there a strict definition of an asylum seeker? You kind of hinted at it along the way, and I think most people kind of have a pretty good idea. But what does it take to qualify for an asylum seeker?
1: That's a great question. And so, essentially, um, somebody you know is defined as an asylum seeker if they can demonstrate that, you know, them returning to their home country would endanger them or their family in a significant way. And you typically, you know, um, you know, there are three, essentially the government kind of allows for three different, you know, kind of reasons for persecution, okay? One is for, you know, if it's political opinion, so, you know, for example, you know, you live in a country where, you know, there's a brutal dictatorship and you hold, you know, uh, opposing uh, political opinions and beliefs, and are vocal about those things and in, unfortunately we still live in a world where in a lot of many parts of the world that that can be grounds for you being put in prison that can be you know grounds for you disappearing or you being killed you know or just being harassed in insignificant ways so political opinion is one uh, the second one is uh, you know what they call uh, religious opinion right so again you know you you know you'll hear stories of you know somebody maybe that is lives in a country that is not a christian nation for example or well, that's not predominantly christian and then they do convert to christianity and sometimes that puts people in harm's way because you know uh, in certain places you die for that unfortunately okay and then the third one is what they call membership of to a particular social group so that means you know, if you find yourself in danger because you belong to a particular tribe in, an, in a you know, in certain parts of the world. So maybe it's a minority tribe that, you know, that's been a- under attack by a different tribe for, for a long time. And so you're not safe because of that. Um, if you find yourself, your life in danger for, you know, something like sexual orientation, even. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, you know, um, you know, I, I'm from Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe, you know, generally, you know, uh, historically has not been known to be, friendly to anybody that is you know not heterosexual um you know in fact our last president i mean was pretty vocal about that and you know and obviously as a believer you know there's certainly conversations we can have around sexual orientation and what's right and what's wrong and you know and and i'm certainly you know good with having you know those conversations what i do believe strongly though is that you know your sexual orientation should not be grounds for you to die you know and so and so sometimes you know there there people that you know end up you know, here in the country because of their sexual orientation and saying, "Look, I don't feel safe returning because you know here here are some documented you know evidence I can you know prove to show that I've actually been in danger because of my mm-hmm. uh, my, my sexual orientation. So that becomes kind of under that third group, which is membership uh, to a particular social group. Um, you know, so so if you come in and essentially can demonstrate, you know, um, any one of those three kind of issues, you know, yeah. your political opinion got you into trouble, um, your religious opinion or, you know, membership of a particular social group, um, then you can petition the US government for asylum. And asylum is basically you, you saying to the government, I can't go back home. And so I need a place to, I need a fresh start. I need a play a new place to call home. Mm-hmm. And so the government can grant you that, that status. Once you're granted that status, it puts you on a path to American citizenship and you can basically call you know the United States home for good and 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 eventually you know can vote and, and just participate in, in, in life in America like anyone else.
0: Do you so do you find those three criteria because you I want to get to the you said the system's kind of broken and needs improvement and there's obviously this gap, two to three year gap where people are in kind of no man's land is an issue. I don't I, I'm gonna assume you have a better solution than I do, but do you find those three criteria like that alone is is good? And can people typically demonstrate that I just imagine like what kind of like extent of like I can imagine it'd be hard to get kind of hard evidence to convince somebody else of your situation I mean that that sounds like a judicial nightmare if not a complexity to really verify I mean you can get somebody that's like a leader of a drug cartel saying yeah well, the government's after me. I'm in danger. Or my yeah. tribe, my drug cartel tribe is like being persecuted right. by the cop You know, yeah. there's all yeah. kinds of narratives that someone could, I'm sure, come up with. But to demonstrate this is a legit case for all the, I guess, genuine asylum seekers, I, I imagine that can be difficult. Is it? So it is.
1: Um, And so that's why, you know, statistically, you know, when somebody, you know, is seeking asylum, I mean, you know, the success rate, you know, kind of when you look at the global success rate in in the U.S. is under 5 percent. You know, so under 5 percent of applicants of asylum are able to sufficiently demonstrate, you know, their their claim and and be able to, you know, kind of corroborate with evidence and, and, and other people's testimonies and things like that. So. Um, it's an extremely difficult thing to, um, you know, to, to prove and to claim. Now it becomes a lot easier if you have, um, you know, good legal representation because having really solid, you know, um, legal representation just helps you to be able to, you know, um, kind of flesh out the details and then also to figure out how, you know, how to actually prove and, you know, you know, demonstrate what you need to demonstrate. So what typically happens is, um, in, in our line of work is we meet people, you know, uh, all the time that, you know, uh, just have been through some horrible, you know, circumstances and can demonstrate, you know, to a decent degree, in our opinion. But if they go in front of an immigration judge or immigration officer with limited uh, evidence, that, you know, that might not be enough, you know, for them. Um, And so part of what we're trying to do as a ministry is also to say, look, if if you come to us and, you know, you have this need, you know, we're going to, you know, know, try to help you. I mean, the first thing we want to do is make sure you've got a safe place to live mm-hmm. that allows you to kind of, you know, go through the whole asylum process without breaking the law. In other words, without working illegally. So that's that's kind of, you know, essentially one of the, the main things we're trying to do. And then while you're, you know, while you're in our program and we've given you a place to live and you're kind of going through these steps until you get a work permit, um, you know, we want to make sure that you also get legal advice, legal representation, because we also know that statistically that increases your chances significantly of, of being successful with your asylum claim.
0: So, yeah. Okay. So, so you fill in the gap, that two to three year gap when people are just <laughs> are yeah, here, but can't, that's just such an odd, like, here, come here, wait three years. Like, what does the government, do they acknowledge that this is not legit or what do they, what do they expect? Like if you ask them, Hey, what do you expect these people to do for two to three years?
1: the government acknowledges it and, and you talk to any convers- any any person in you know any politician regardless of their uh, you know political affiliation or beliefs okay. everybody agrees there's a problem here i think where the uh, where the disagreement starts is at how to solve the problem is kind of i think typically you know where um, you know big issue is so my understanding of kind of why we have this crisis today um, is that you know, so so the U- United States has not had any um, broad immigration ref- reform legislation since the mid 80s. Okay, so you're talking, wow. you know, almost 40 years. And so the all the, you know, the, the major immigration, you know, policy that's that's at work today, you know, hasn't been updated or revamped or reworked in, you know, in almost 40 years. And so, you know, once upon a time, there weren't that many people that were coming to the US to you know seek asylum and part of it is maybe that there weren't that many people that even knew that was an option because you know if you're talking 80s and 90s there was no internet no social media and all, and all of that stuff and so you know the, the information just was not you know getting to different parts of the world as quickly or as, as clearly as it does today so when the initial kind of the asylum you know uh, laws were put in place I think it was reasonable to expect that if somebody came in today to seek asylum that you know the government probably could give them a decision on their asylum claim or asylum request within 3 to 6 months and so if you were granted asylum then you know within 3 to 6 months I've got a social security number I've got a work permit and I can start working and I can look after myself and so and start and start living my life in America problem is that over the years, you know, if you got get into the late '90s and into the 2000s, the internet, um, you know, you know, becomes more freely available, and so information starts to travel. And so now, what starts to happen is there are people in Zimbabwe, there are people in China, there are people in you know different parts of the world that now, you know, have been persecuted are hearing about all these different options, and they think, okay, if I can leave. I'm going to try to leave. And I've been told that if I can make it to the United States, I might be able to get some relief there. So I think there's just more knowledge, you know, because of kind of the world we're living in today, because of that additional knowledge and more people kind of thinking, okay, look, if I'm going to leave, I'm going to try to get to the U.S. Because I also feel like, you know, you think about it, I think, you know, uh, with the United States reputation for freedom and liberty and all that. Um, you know, if you were, you know, trying to, you know, had to flee your home country, that's, you know, um, you know, 10,000, 15,000 miles away. And you had to pick a place that you're thinking, okay, if I have to, if I have to go somewhere, that's not home. I think I want to go to a place that, you know, um, you know, is liberty is freedom. And so I'm going to try to find a way to make it to the, to the U S because if I can pull that off, you know, I may not be, you know, uh, at home anymore, which, which, which is horrible, but at least I'm in a place where there's freedom and there's opportunity and there's, you know, all those, all those different things. Mm-hmm. So what that led to is that, you know, since the mid two thousands, you know, there's been kind of just a gradual increase in people applying, you know, t- you know, to uh, come into the country and, and seeking asylum from the U S government. And as those applications, you know, um, have increased, unfortunately the government has not, you know, increase the capacity to process those applications. So, you know, the you know, when you look at the staffing numbers, you know, with uh, with in, in terms of the government uh, immigration departments, they haven't changed very drastically in the last 20 years. In in, many, in fact, a lot of times too, whenever. And a new administration comes into power, and they're looking at kind of reallocating resources. A lot of times, they've you know actually pulled resources out of the you know immigration oh, wow. uh, budgets and actually reallocated those. So essentially, the crisis that we see today you know, has been kind of a long time in the making, simply because we've allowed for a, a huge backlog to you know uh, to be created. And so, a system that was designed initially to allow you to you know come into the country and get an asylum decision within a matter of months. Is no longer able to do that because of the backlog, and so now people have to, you know, wait, you know, uh, years before they actually get a decision. And unfortunately, when you come in to seek asylum, you know, as soon, you know, you submit your asylum application today, you do not get a, a work permit, you know, simply because you've submitted an asylum application. There's still a waiting period before you can apply for a work permit and all of that stuff. So, th- that's, you know, kind of a, a lot of what's contributing to, you know, uh, to the challenges that uh, that we're we're facing today.
0: So imbalance of funding plays at least a role. Like a lot, I mean, like I'm 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 gonna imagine there's just lack of personnel to process the paperwork and everything, which is due to funding largely, right? I mean, or I mean, funding and also just a a perspective that maybe this isn't as important as other things. I mean, I wonder what what if what if the government tapped into the one trillion dollar military budget just a little bit, right? Maybe Ten billion? <laughs> I don't know, just a little some pocket change. <laughs> Hires more people. I don't know. Is that that too simplified? Or I mean, so is it, would you say that I guess the root issue is just, it's just not as high of a priority as, Many other things? I mean,
1: absolutely. I think, you know, ultimately, I think there isn't really the political will to fix this, in my opinion. Um, and like you're saying, there's, I think, a lot of, there are a lot of, you know, uh, other things that government and legislators are looking at that are considered to be more important and high of higher priority. And, and that, you know, I'm not, you know, it's not my place to say that's yeah. wrong or right, because I understand that, you know, life is all about trade-offs. Yeah, um, you know, but I don't think there's the political will at the will at the moment to deal with it effectively. Because if there was, I mean, this is America. I, you know, I don't know many many things that America. You know, when Americans have put their minds together, you know, to to towards something, things get done. You know, so yeah.
0: <laughs> I want to come back to that that an immigrant perspective on on America and the social issues. But um, does does the system give priority to certain countries from which asylum seekers are coming from? Is is there for lack of better terms, equality there or is, is, is there other problems there?
1: That's a great question. So as a general rule, um, anyone from anywhere in the world can, you know, come and, you know, and petition the government for for asylum, right? But naturally speaking, it's going to be extremely difficult for somebody who's a British citizen, for example, to show up in the U.S. and say, "Hey, I'm here to seek asylum," just, you know, just because of kind of, you know, what we know about, you know, um, human rights and all of that stuff, um, you know, um, in 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 Great Britain, right? And so, you know, so technically it's open to everybody. Uh, but what you'll find typically is that a lot, the vast majority of your applications are coming from certain countries, you know, you know, there's, so there's a number of African countries that have, you know, where we see a lot of numbers. There's obviously, you know, um, you know, countries in the middle East and Asia that we'll see, you know, um, you know, some good numbers from, and then also obviously in the last 15 years, you know, there's been more and more people coming from central America, kind of that Northern triangle, mm-hmm. uh, that have been coming to, you know, to seek asylum. So, uh, anyone can apply, but what we What we will see, what we will find is you know, depending on kind of what's going on globally, you know sometimes there is some prioritization that will happen. So you know, for example, you know with the once the war in Ukraine broke out, um you know there were some kind of special measures that were put in place that allowed you know uh, Ukrainian citizens in 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 some respect in some cases to be able to kind of fast track you know, the process and come into the country and seek asylum and all of that stuff. You know, we also saw that, you know, last year, you know, with Afghan, you know, Afghan citizens after, you know, the U.S. Army, the U.S. government pulled all the, you know, the military out of Afghanistan. And, and you know, and there were some complications there, obviously. So depending on what's going on globally, you know, from a policy standpoint and, you know, some of the foreign engagement stuff, you know, the government is capable of, you know, kind of giving, you know, kind of special dispensation to certain citizens of certain countries, but that doesn't typically last forever. And it kind of, you know, it just depends on, you know, you know, the, the kind of crisis that, uh, that's being handled and at, at the moment, but as a general rule, anyone from any part of the world that, you know, that feels unsafe has an opportunity to come and petition the U S government.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, so as long as the, the, yeah. So one country, say one country over here, another country over here, I'm not going to use examples because that's not the point, but like, as long as there's kind of equal evidence of conflict and legitimate, you know, reasons why they might seek asylum, there's not like a priority given to certain parts of the world over others, as long as, okay. I'm curious with your own story, how, how did you, did, were you in that limbo two to three year? Like, and what did you do when you were seeking asylum, but weren't quite verified or given full citizenship? What was that like for you?
1: So, um... You know for 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 me, that that limbo uh, process, um yeah, I mean, that's something that I had to deal with with my family okay. uh, for a little while. and And so you know part of what was helpful for me was we actually had you know family that we could stay with for a little while. And so you know that it helps, obviously, if you're not under pressure you know, to pay rent and, and 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 that. So that was something that, you know, that I'm still very grateful for to this day. Mm-hmm. But spent a lot of time just sitting and waiting, you know, which was extremely frustrating. Um, you know, we had some savings, but again, I don't know anyone that has two to three years worth of savings, you know, um, kind of just sitting around. And so you're dealing with that insecurity, financial insecurity, you know, kids are in school, but, you know, there's a lot of needs that, you know, that, that, that need to be paid for. And you're kind of, you know, con- consistently worried about that. Uh, it helped, obviously, to have a really strong, um, you know, kind of attorney, somebody who was really experienced and who knew what they were doing because okay. that it, in some ways also helped kind of shorten the waiting waiting periods uh, to an extent. Uh, but there's still quite a bit of waiting you got to do. And then eventually how I connected with Dash was – um, you know, actually being invited to an event that Dash was putting up and then, you know, came there and decided, look, I've got a bunch of time on my hands. I might as well volunteer. So I started to volunteer uh, with okay. Dash as a way to kind of keep myself busy and give myself something to do. And obviously didn't realize that kind of God was opening uh, kind of a, a, a new chapter, you know, um, in my life at that, you know, through through that connection.
0: So, ha- so having, for asylum seekers, having some kind of family or even just relational connections in the country already that's a, probably a huge means of how they can can survive um it's a big deal for sure yeah. because
1: having you know people that are know that have emigrated ahead of you or people that are you know american and kind of know the system just helps you to be able to kind of prevent you know making you know certain mistakes that you might make but also you're you're kind of making decisions you know um you know being while being able to rely on some pretty informed uh, you know uh, advice and and so that's yeah. a huge so even with our work with Dash, you know, what will, you know, if you, you know, go on our website, you'll read how we'll talk about, you know, the main, you know, what we're seeking to provide to asylum-seeking families and individuals mainly is housing, you know, number one, because, you know, we we don't want you, you know, in the streets and, you know, you being homeless if, you, you know, if you're you a legitimate asylum seeker. Uh, number two is food. You know, again, if you can't work, you can't pay for housing, you can't pay for food. And then number three, we talk about friendship or community. And that's us saying, okay, you know, we want to kind of bring you, um, you know, closer to you know uh, friends and, and and kind of the body of Christ that can essentially substitute. You know, if you don't have any family, you know, but we can you know bring the body of Christ you know close to you. And now you do actually have resources and relationships that you're building that could be very useful for the rest of your life in, in America.
0: So that's the three main areas: relationships, housing, and and food. Food and then yeah. also and then social
1: social service and okay. social support too now so that's you know additionally but the, those are the main three that we talk about yeah
0: and I, so I'm curious I mean that's how many asylum seekers are you able to care for I mean I imagine financially that's that's a lot of money I mean do you have to raise a lot of money and the more money you raise is that the more you can take on I mean is it is it really again come comes down to a money question
1: (laughs) for the most part yes um so yeah it's not a it's not a cheap proposition now i think we've been doing this for a while you know to you know where we're kind of you know comfortable about you know how how we ought to do it you know and what kind of service we're trying to provide how we're trying to house people while still trying to be you know cost effective and so um you know a lot of my role as executive director is raising money, you know, um, looking for resources. So I'm spending a lot of time engaging with, uh, you know, church churches in, you know, uh, especially here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh and kind of you know uh, pursuing partnerships with them and so we're relying on churches to kind of help us financially where possible but also a lot of our heavy lifting as a ministry is done through you know volunteers and so churches are also sure. kind of a great way for us to be able to find people that can do all our you know food pickups and drop-offs that can you know that, that can pick somebody up from the airport or the bus station when we need to bring them into our program that can you know take somebody to a doctor's appointment and things like that so Spend a lot of time engaging with uh, you know with churches, you know looking to kind of create partnerships there. And then also, you know as we've grown, we've started to engage more and more with foundations that have okay. so you know capacity financially to uh, to support us. And then we also get a pretty you know significant you know amount of our budget now, about a third. Coming from kind of individuals and families yeah. and people like you and I that will say, "Hey, look, I'm gonna go on your website and I'll give you 100 bucks a month or you know 125 a month, and I'll commit to doing that for the next three years or so." And and so you know we're, we're able to do it you know, uh, to to sustain the ministry that way.
0: And are you focused just on asylum seekers in the Dallas Fort Worth area? Or are you like all across the country?
1: So all our so our housing, you know, so we rent a bunch of apartments okay. uh, here in the, in the Fort Worth area uh, specifically. Okay. Okay. And so, if you're if you're wanting to be in our program in in Dash, you have to be willing to move to Fort Worth essentially, because this is where we have housing. So we do. So we're receiving people all the time from you know different parts of the world. We have a, a mom and child that we're expecting in the next week. That's right. That's been based in the Phoenix area for the last you know several months. Uh, we've had people come in from Washington D.C. You know that had to, you know that came all this way for housing. And so we'll help you out. You know, it doesn't matter where you are, but you have to be willing to move to. Uh, to the Dallas-Fort Worth area if you want to be in our program. Now, if you're not able to move to the Dallas-Fort Worth area or not not willing, we'll do our best to try to, you know, kind of connect you with maybe other organizations that might be closer to where you are, um, you know, to help you out. But the challenge is there's not very many, you know, there's, you'll find a decent number of organizations that will provide some short-term relief to asylum seekers, um, you know, a couple of weeks of housing, that kind of thing. Uh, But there's, there's literally under 400 beds in the whole country that are long-term housing to asylum seekers. And by long-term, I mean, you know, you come in now and you can stay with us rent-free for as long as it takes until you finally get your work permit and can actually start to, um, you know, stand on your own on your own feet. And so, you know, if we have less than 400 beds in the whole country, you know, um, to assist, we as Dash at the moment have about 50 of those beds. So you're talking about over 10% of the capacity in the whole country. Is, uh, yeah. is, is is with us here in, in Fort Worth.
0: Another quick question I should have asked earlier. What's the difference? This is going uh, to sound ignorant, but I'll just, I often sound ignorant on my own show, but <laughs> the the difference between like a refugee and an asylum seeker. Like in, in Boise, where I live, we've got a lot of, re- it's a pretty, one of the major refugee resettlement. Are they all, I, I, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to guess. You correct me if I'm wrong. That like, Every asylum seeker would also be a refugee, but not every refugee would it be an asylum seeker? Or is that too simplistic?
1: So that's 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 a really good summary. Yes. Um, okay. so you you've got it right. Um, the major differences in how I try to you know kind of simplify you know it for people to understand is, so both refugees and asylum seekers are people that have had to flee the place they call home and 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 go somewhere else. And you know they're not able to go back, right? Um, because it's not safe. The difference is, a refugee is typically, you know, somebody that's been displaced as part of a larger group. You know, okay. so I'll give, you, I'll give the war in Ukraine as an example, since it's still kind of, you know, it's it's still a, it's a very topical um, issue at the moment. So, the moment Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and the war started. You know, there were, you know, you know, millions of people that, you know, were displaced from their home regions, from their hometowns that moved some moved to kind of Western Ukraine and try to stay there. But others also kind of ended up across the border in Poland and you know, places like that. And the United Nations was scrambling to essentially set up like refugee camps, uh, refugee facilities and things to receive these people um, and, and actually give them a place to live and water and food and all of that. So you know when you've been displaced as a large group of people like that, you know, so somebody from Ukraine, for example, you know, would typically you know uh, be treated more as a refugee. So there's kind of a more, it's a larger group that's been uh, affected, and it's a larger group that's being assisted. And so what happens? You know, and the United Nations is kind of leading that whole process. And so the United Nations is then in conversation with the American government, the Canadian government, with the British government in Germany and Australia and places like that to say, okay, We've got all these, you know, 800,000 Ukrainians, you know, that that need relocation and need a place to go. And the U.S. government and, you know, through the president will make a declaration and say, okay, we are willing in 2023 to, and I'm just giving an example, we'll, we'll, we'll accept 100,000 of, um, you know, of those uh, refugees from Ukraine. And once they've given that number, the United Nations is responsible for kind of helping with the vetting process and all that stuff and determining who amongst the 800,000 people that are in Poland that are Ukrainian are going to be allowed to come to the US and essentially start over as refugees, you know, here in uh, in, in America. So it's a whole process and then, you know, if if you're one of the individuals that's been selected to come out of Poland and come to the US, um, you know, so you're going to come to Fort Worth as an example, you know, know, the government is kind of assisting with that whole process. They put you on a plane that you're not paying for at that moment and you arrive at Dallas Fort Worth International Airport and the government has agencies all over the country so you've heard of world vision mm-hmm. catholic charities and you know other organizations like that who essentially are contracted by the government to receive you when you arrive and also kind of help you with your transition into 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 life in america so when you come out of the airport at dallas Fort Worth international um you know there's a somebody from catholic charity there could be a staff member there could be a volunteer that's got a sign that's got your name preston you know written on it and so now you know that's who you're going with and they take you to an apartment that the government's paid for for several months that they've found volunteers and people to furnish and all of that stuff. And so they then they, they kind of move you into that apartment. If you have a spouse and children, they help you figure out how to enroll your kids in school and all that stuff. But also as soon as you arrive, you're eligible to eligible to work, you're eligible right. to get a social security number and all that stuff. And so that whole process is, you know, kind of fast tracked. And then you also do get like, you know, several months of government Funding, so some kind of monthly stipend as well, just to kind of help you. Because obviously, if you arrive today, uh, you know, you're not going to find a job today. So, you need a little bit of kind of a runway uh, to kind of help you, you know, before you can be independent. So, that's kind of the process, you know, when we're talking about somebody that's classified a refugee.
0: Okay. So, that pro, so the entirely different process, really, that is, it sounds like it's way more beneficial to be a refugee than an asylum seeker who's not a refugee. I mean, that sounds bad to so, say beneficial, so, but that's yeah. starts- I, mean,
1: I mean, obviously, you know, uh, somebody that's been a refugee that's, you know, been displaced and ended up maybe being in a refugee camp in a foreign country for two or three years or five years, obviously that's a horrible sure. situation. But I think once you arrive in the uh, more- U you S know, as a refugee, I think you've, you, you've probably got a little bit of a better deal um, than, than somebody that's an asylum seeker because an asylum seeker now, and I'll give you the contrast. So, uh, an asylum seeker also, you know, um, it has you know been displaced, can't go back home. and you know they're not necessarily part of a large group that's been displaced. So you know maybe because of your your particular religious belief uh, as Preston, you've had to flee. or because of your particular political opinion, you've had to flee. So you found a way to get yourself out of the country. To be an asylum seeker, you have to get yourself onto u s. soil by yourself, so the government's not helping you with that process, you know, whereas as a refugee, you're getting help to get onto U.S. soil. As an asylum seeker, it's your responsibility, you know, and you cannot request asylum until you're on U.S. soil. Okay. And then once you're on US soil, you know, you also do not automatically get a work permit and social security number simply because you're on US soil. You know, you've got to go through a whole application process and that's where you're subject to the backlogs that I was talking about earlier. And that's why you, you know, you now end up finding that people have to, you know, sometimes wait about three years before you're finally able to work and, and, and actually start looking after yourself. So what we at Dash are essentially trying to do is kind of be for asylum seekers what the
0: government is. For refugees. This episode is sponsored by Camp Rockmont. Okay, so I've had some life-changing experiences at summer camps growing up, both as a camper and also as a counselor, experiences that really have shaped who I am today. This is why I'm so excited to let you know about Camp Rockmont. Camp Rockmont is an interdenominational Christian summer camp for boys, ages uh, 7 to 17, and it's located in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Camp Rockmont provides uh, age-progressive opportunities for your son to challenge himself, make lifelong friends, and grow as an individual, whether it's learning how to guide a kayak on a river or how to plant a Harvest food on at their on-site organic farm, or just learning how to navigate life in community. There are exceptional counselors there to guide your son every step of the way. And over ninety percent of parents report that their sons grew in self-confidence and independence even after a single session at Rockmont. Now, uh, like you, um, I, I, you know, I could be a little skeptical of, of camps. You know, I want to know like who's in charge, how how is it run? And so I reached out to the director just to get to know him a little more. And dude, this guy's like an awesome guy, and I just loved hearing his heart for. Um, camp and for the, di- the different boys that he's walking with and he also happens to be an avid theology raw listener, which isn't why he's awesome, but I don't know. It's kind of an added benefit. So Camp Rockmont offers two, three and four week sessions designed to help your son thrive. Now to receive $300 off any session and to learn more about Rockmont, uh, you just go and visit rockmont.com forward slash Theo, T-H-E-O. That's rockmont.com forward slash Theo. All the info is in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Biola University. Biola is consistently ranked as one of the nation's leading Christian universities. It has over 300 academic programs at both the undergraduate and graduate levels, which are available both in Southern California and online. With leading academic programs like business, film, science, and more, Uh, Biola's biblically integrated curriculum and spiritual formation also helps students grow closer to God and gain a deeper understanding of scripture. In fact, I was just on the campus of Biola touring, touring the campus and talking to several deans and professors and every single person I talked to was so utterly passionate about making Christ first in all things and instilling Christ-like virtues in the hearts and minds of their students. I mean, honestly, I was so impressed with how Christ-centered the entire school is. So at Biola, students become equipped for living a thriving life and career. They'll also learn how to articulate their Christian beliefs. And most of all, they'll be prepared to serve as God's instrument in their communities and around the world. Now, through May 1st, 2023, if you use the promo code Preston, okay, my name, Preston, uh, that will waive the application fee for any Biola program. Okay. So promo code Preston, waive the fee. Some restrictions might apply. Just visit biolet.edu for more information. Is there some gray area on, because I would imagine asylum seekers are also coming from areas that are, have conflict. It's not just like yeah, my neighbor is trying to kill me, and I need to get out of here. There's something bigger than that, but it hasn't been. It needs to be officially declared by the U.S. government. This is a yeah. conflict zone. Is that is that really a yeah. big so difference? I think the, the
1: United Nations got to be involved in that whole, okay. you know, kind of process. So yeah, so I think that's yeah, that's one of the you know the the, the major di- differences.
0: So it's like Mexico. I, I don't think has been. You wouldn't be be able to be a refugee from Mexico, but obviously there, you know, with. Cartel and this that like there could be a lot yeah, of we have
1: helped. we've helped people that were in the country seeking asylum that were from Mexico yeah so you're 100 percent correct
0: so if you're from Mexico you can't come in as a refugee you can as an asylum seeker and that puts you out of you may be in just as much danger but it just it's not a nationwide conflict zone exactly okay.
1: oh, that- exactly exactly.
0: Oh, man. I mean, it's actually really helpful. Thank you for that. Uh, So that's where the gap is. And that's where you guys come along and and fill that gap. This is kind of off the topic a little bit, but it's kind of it's been a thread that's kind of underlined, I guess, this whole discussion, like, as a a US native, you know, especially in the last couple decades, like, in this is kind of a, a politically polarized, maybe observation, but like, depending on your circles, which news outlets you listen to, like, you may get the impression that um, the US is filled with just oppressive racism, uh, financial inequality, um, systems in place that keep certain people down where they can't see. Like it's, it's, um, it sounds like a pretty, yeah, oppressive place to live. But then you've kind of, you're laughing. <laughs> you've kind of said, like, you know, people are fleeing for the freedom that America has and the opportunity. And is, is it, like, dude, as this is a general statement, like our refugees, asylum seekers, or just immigrants in, in general, like really disappointed when they find out that America is a corrupt place. Or, or is it? Is that really kind of a, a U.S. centered perspective that people in other country maybe wouldn't share coming in? I didn't did understand the question. Like, I'm.
1: I do. I, yeah, I, I absolutely get it. So there are conversations i'll have with some friends and family you know of mine you know people from zimbabwe or other friends from other parts of africa you know specifically um and we'll kind of laugh sometimes um and you know talk about how some issues that you know uh, we hear people talking about and you know being upset about are you know kind of what we call first world problems right uh, where you know once you know um you know when you're doing comf- when you're comfortable you've got a decent place to live you've got food in your belly and all that stuff and you know you can you know probably start to kind of you know uh, nitpick a little bit about well you know this could be a little bit better and that kind of thing and and so i think the united states is a prosperous you know it's the most prosperous country in the world um and so i do think there's been kind of a little bit of that you know um you know almost um with people are so accomf- so accustomed to being comfortable and to kind of having you know being in a society that provides so much that it can almost feed a, a sense of entitlement almost or you know kind of a, a little bit of a um, I'm 90 percent happy but I think I deserve to be 100 percent happy you know kind you know kind of kind of a vibe and so you know um, you know the places that I've you know visited and kind of where I grew up and things you know we have family and friends that obviously you know, are facing some very, you know, very difficult life circumstances because of the economy, because of the politics sometimes, and just, and then life is, life is hard. I mean, scripture talks, you know, in the Bible, Jesus, himself, you know, himself said, in this life, you will have trouble, you know, that that's just, you know, it's a given. I try to, you know, be very careful, you know, in having conversations around, you know, kind of the, the racism and, you know, inequality and things like that about, you know, in America, you know, because, you know, my perspective is a little bit different. Okay. I, somebody as somebody who emigrated to the US, so I first came here to go to college, right? Um, you know, so I don't have the I don't carry kind of the historical baggage, so to speak, yeah. right? Of, of of being a black man in America. Okay. I don't my parents never lived in America, my grandparents, you know, so everything I know about the history of America, you know, with respect to race and with respect to slavery and all that is, you know, those are not lived experiences for my family or for me, okay? You know, my perspective is obviously going to be different because of that. Now, I do understand, I mean, I, I don't know that I've met anyone that thinks that slavery was a good idea. Right. Um, and then I don't know that I know anyone that thinks that creating systems that are, you know, that, that that disadvantage one group over the other is a good thing to do. I don't know anyone that that thinks that, okay? But But having said that, America is still an incredible place. Okay, I think that the American dream, you know, for lack of a better term, is still very much alive. Okay, um, you know, to share a little bit more about kind of my own personal journey. Um, so once I, you know, moved back with my family um, and started to kind of get involved with Dash, at, you know, simultaneously. I was able to get involved, you know, with a small business that, you know, somebody had started that they were trying to grow. And I was able to kind of get in there and partner with them, you know. And so, you know, I work, you know, uh, as executive director, I serve as executive director of Dash, but I also run a small business. And that business, you know, has been growing and it's, you know, it's allowing me to be able to do certain things for my family and to you know for other people, too. I mean, we've got... You know, people in, you know, Zimbabwe that we're kind of helping with, put them through school and things like that, and all of that is, you know, quite honestly to me, you know, things that are happening really because of being in America and also being willing to actually go in and put in the work, um, you know, and, and 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 get to work. And so, I don't think that the American dream is dead, to be honest. In 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 fact. A lot of immigrants are still seeing America as the one place um, you know that you can go and actually make something of yourself, um you know, even even today. That's my perspective. That's yeah. probably the perspective. a lot of people around around me uh, you know, will share. Um, you know, I haven't had, you know, direct, you know, any direct kind of police brutality, you know, right. kind of thing right. happen to me that you know that I could speak of. um you know, have i been concerned with some of the stuff that's been in the media? Absolutely, I have. You know, have I had my own worries about me and my kids? For sure. Uh, but it's, you know, I haven't you know, experienced that. You know, we live in Texas, you know, we live in Texas where most of our neighbors don't look like me. Um, you know, my kids are in school with kids that are that don't look like them for the most part. Um, but our experience so far has been favorable. Um, and we've, you know, felt felt welcome uh, and in many ways we feel like we're also able to contribute to this society you know mm-hmm. in in positive ways and so um you know so so yeah. we're grateful um so that that's my take um, i do think that we're you know, obviously living in a world where sensational you know sensationalization of stuff is is a big deal um, regardless of where you stand um, you know, kind of politically and things like that, and so I think that's something we've all got to be, you know, really mindful of. But I think America is is is, is still a great place. I think it's yeah. it's still growing. There's still lots of opportunities, and um, you know, God's blessing is still here. I believe.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, yeah, and I know that whenever you bring up anything related to these issues, it gets so politicized, and and people have you know really strong opinions, and it's just. I I mean, as I kind of like look upon the race conversation, I have. A notice kind of a, a maybe a on a very general level somewhat different perspectives from like uh first generation immigrants versus people who have you know lived here and and it it's it's it's, it's just very complex relationship I remember um, talking to a buddy of mine who passes a church in New York and he um he's got one of the most ethnically diverse churches in, in the country and you know he says it's really interesting I mean you have this kind of kind of like the the you know the kind of white majority perspective and then you have people of color who have been here for decades generations you know and then you have first generation immigrants and then then you have kind of the white liberals or whatever so yeah and he says these are very different categories like drawing perspectives across simply racial lines is just way too simplified he says you're bringing in different ethnic backgrounds and stuff that it, it creates a very different Absolutely. sometimes very complex perspective so um I'm curious, going back to Dash, how does the gospel factor into the work you guys are doing? I mean, obviously, I mean, and that's not a, the very work you're doing to me feels just like it bleeds gospel just by doing the work. But is it, are you, you know, explicitly Christian? Is there, um, do you see people like come to Christ? Or probably, I would imagine a lot of people seeking asylum probably do. Duke are Christians. Um, But yeah, what, how does the gospel factor factor into your work?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, one of our board members, when he first um, got involved with Dash several years ago, I remember, you know, him saying, you know, that uh, what he loved the most about, you know, being involved with Dash was he felt like, you know, this was one ministry where we all got an opportunity to literally be the hands and feet of Christ, um, you know, and and that, yeah. that spoke to me because I think, you know, that, that that really sums up, you know, why we exist and the opportunity um, you know that, that we have. And so, you know, uh, our mission is very Jesus centric. OK, we're trying to share the compassionate love of Christ. That's that's why we exist. Um, by meeting those physical and relational needs that, um, you know, that asylum-seeking individuals and families, uh, you know, will have. We're doing that because we want every person that we encounter to actually feel the love of Christ so that we can talk about Christ and why we do and what we're doing. So, you know, if you're coming into our program, you don't need to be a believer. You don't have to be Christian even for you to come into a program. So we've served people that were atheists and agnostic. We've served people that were, you know, uh, you know, believers from a certain kind of denominations. We've also served people that were Muslim and, you know, Buddhist and all of that. And, 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 and so you don't need to be a believer, to, you know, as, as a prerequisite to come into coming into our program. However... We are intentional about wanting to share Christ, and so you know you you have to be willing to be in an environment that's talking about Christ, and the environment okay. where we're going to pray, you know, uh, before we meet and do stuff. Environment where we're going to share Scripture and we're going to you know um, you know and just kind of have those conversations. Um, and so, because what we are wanting is to, to be able to, you know, kind of do, you know, what, uh, you know, one of the quotes that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi of, you know, preach the gospel, uh, and if necessary, use words. Right. And so, you know, we're trying to preach the gospel by kind of how we're loving you, how we're meeting your physical and relational needs. And then also, oh, you know, by the way, let's just talk about where you're at spiritually, because what we're also learning too, is that the, the poverty you know, that uh, somebody that you know, somebody faces when they arrive in a country and can't work for a couple of years, two or three years is not just a you know financial, physical poverty, you know, that there's also a real spiritual poverty uh, that only Christ and the Holy Spirit can, you know, um, can 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 heal. And so, you know, we're trying to point point people to Christ as much as we can. We have, you know, in our budget, a position that is specifically, you know, to hire somebody whose job is to almost kind of be like a dash chaplain kind of Mm -hmm. pastor type person where their job is just to kind of get to know every single resident and their families and get to know them and kind of learn about how we could be praying for you and also be having the conversation around, you know, so here's, you know, from a biblical standpoint, here's you know what you know what you ought to be thinking about and praying about and also that reminder that okay you're here as an asylum seeker and you've obviously been through hardship uh, but also going you know, to those reminders that scripture promises that we're all going to be you know go through hardship and then there's also examples of people that went through some very difficult, you know, circumstances themselves, you know, in the Bible, and how kind of God saw, you know, saw them through, and all of that. And so we really are, you know, wanting to create, you know, that, that, you know, those opportunities for those conversations. So we have Bible studies, we have, you know, women's, you know, you know, small groups, some devotional stuff we're doing, and things like that. Some of those stuff, you know, you you opt in if you want to, you can, and you know, but we try to encourage that you do, you know, because ultimately. What we're wanting is to you know preach christ and you know the i think the ultimate victory for us is not that we were able to give you a place to live and give you food to eat but ultimately we're able to you know uh, point you to christ so that you can make a commitment um you know for your own salvation or, or if you've been in a place where you know spiritually you're not where he wants were, we want to create an environment that hopefully gets you reconnected with with, with christ uh, so that by the time you've graduated from our program and moved on you're in a better place um, emotionally as well and spiritually as well.
0: Yeah. I would imagine that all the people you work with, you know, their their first entry point in the U.S., they are faced with a very extremely good picture of the, bride, the church, the body of Christ, right? I mean, here's people coming along, a lot of volunteers dedicating their own time to helping them to just, you're, you're just, you're embodying the God. Like you said, you're, you're being the hands of Jesus in a real explicit, blatant way. Like that's gotta be, is that really have a good impact on people that, um, might may, you know, maybe they had weren't raised in a church or maybe they weren't sure about the, you know, Christianity of America or, you know. So, I mean, that's
1: that's the hope. Um, obviously, um, you know, that's what we're hoping and praying for. I think the reality is that's not always the case. Um, I think, you know, obviously, you know, the kind of the, the sinful nature of man, the fallen nature of man. You know, we 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 will encounter sometimes, you know, people that are maybe not seeing things the way that we we thought they would see things, and you know, some you know kind of sense of entitlement a little bit. Well. You know, you guys gave me a place to live and gave me, you know, food to eat, but you didn't do enough for me to be able to, you know, uh, send money back home to my loved ones or, you know, things like that because there's mm-hmm. always you know, yeah. needs. Um yeah. you know, so, so, I think it depends, but quite honestly, uh, the people that we've served that have, you know, kind of come in as more mature believers, I think have really, you know, um, you know, seen. The gospel in a different light and also seeing God in a different light and so we've had many people testify to say look when I arrived in this program I was broken you know and not just physically and mentally but also spiritually and you know the body of Christ coming around me and the relationships that I got into and the bible studies and the conversations that I you know I was involved in and the prayer I received I'm leaving this place now that I've got a work permit and I can look after myself in a much better place and much stronger spiritually and you know i've plugged into this local church that i met through dash and i plan on staying you know with that church uh you know for, for for as long as possible and things like that and that's always a real blessing um you know when 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 that happens but we are dealing with people and um you know sometimes you know what we're trying to convey is not always received the way sure. uh, that we want yeah.
0: humans are humans yeah, So you, you, you partner with a lot of churches in the area, like a lot of churches that you're involved with. And they like supply volunteers, and how how else are churches involved?
1: Uh, yep, supply volunteers in a, in a very significant way, um, but also you know supporting us financially um, in a very significant way. So we've got a good number of churches now, you know, predominantly in the Dallas Fort Worth area, but we do have a you know a couple of churches that are not in the area. We have a church in El Paso, we have a church in Mississippi uh, that will actually you know that do send us some financial support. Um, you know, on a on a regular basis. So, um, you know, and, and that's huge. Uh, we also will tap into churches. When one of our residents is, you know, finally has a work permit and they're ready to work, and we're trying to find, you know, job, you know, work for them, we'll try to tap into the networks too, because uh, know, yeah, obviously yeah. churches are, you know, made of people, and in churches, some of the people their own businesses or, you sure. know, know somebody who's looking for somebody with a, you know, specific skill set and things like that, and so we'll try to, you know, um, you know, tap into into that network. But we're, what we're also trying to do is create environments as well for the local church to kind of experience kind of, uh, you know, um, kind of international missions without having to get on a plane. And so we're trying to also, you know, create environments for people to come and and get to know um, our residents and kind of serve, you know, in very relational capacities. In fact, uh, tomorrow night, um, you know, we're we're being hosted by one of our church partners in in an event that we call our Dash International Worship Night. So we do this once a year, where we'll get together on a Saturday night and actually just have a worship, you know, kind of worship night, a night of worship, and a number of our residents are going to lead worship in their languages or in kind of in their culture and things like that. Will so I mean there'll probably be I don't know ten different languages spoken and songs done in different languages at this event. And this is an event where we're, you know, kind of inviting all our church partners and everybody, you know, the body of Christ at large in the area say, hey, come, come check this out, because this really is what we believe a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like, you know, when we finally get there, because heaven will not just be Americans, it will not just be Zimbabwe. Citizens, it will not just be black or white or whatever. I mean, we're we're all children of God, of God, and coming from you know different backgrounds, and different languages, and all that. And so, I'm trying to also kind of give the you know the local church a taste of what of, of that. Mm. Just just because you know I think it's it's good for all of us if we can
0: experience it. That sounds awesome, man. We'll love the work you're doing, and uh, thanks for yeah, yeah I've just I've just learned a ton just in the last hour from <laughs> all these questions I had, and and just sounds I just love love gospel-centered, tangible ministries like this. I just, I remember um, visiting an, uh, an incredible um, ministry in outside of Ken in Kenya and actually all across Africa uh, called, um, oh, got the blank on the name. But I think it's CARE. They do a lot of like free medical, like surgeries okay, yeah. as an expression of the gospel. And I remember the, the people there saying, you know, they say, we, we don't, we never need to convince people about Christ's love for them because we've, we lead with demonstrating that we don't need to say, and come on, like Jesus loves you. This invisible person in the heavens or It's like, no, they've, they've done this like incredible work for free. And people are looking at them dumbfounded. Like, why are you doing this? Like, Oh, well, let me tell you about the love of Christ. So when you lead with tangible embodied love, the verbal declaration of that love just comes really easy. You don't need to do a lot of apologetic, you know, convincing them. So no. love the work you're doing. How can people, um, help out? I mean, you've, I, again, I'm thinking financial gifts, volunteers, and even that it's interesting what you said also, like if, if somebody has say a business anywhere in the country and like, Hey, I would love to employ some people once they do get a uh, citizenship, like that, it sounds like that's a, to have those leads available would be good as well. Or yeah, you go ahead. Whatever else, however else Absolutely, people can help yeah.
1: out. Um, you know, we, we i tell people all the time you know that if you have a specific gift that you know you've gotten from god a talent or a gift there's a really good chance that we're going to be able to use it in fact you know we have an in-house uh, our own kind of esl program that we run in our in our in our ministry that didn't exist until you know one day i you know went and spoke to a, a small group at a church and a lady came up to me and said hey I don't you know I'm retired, and I don't you know don't have very much money. Um, so I'm not in a place where I can make any significant financial donation. But I have forty years of teaching English as a second oh, language. Wow yeah, Could you guys use that? And I'm looking at her like, could we, you know? And so, you know, she helped us put together a program because we didn't have one before and we were essentially just trying to refer all our residents to kind of other people's programs and that wasn't always convenient. And so, um, if you have a skill or, you know, gift that you, you know, you, you would like to use, there's a good chance that we could find something to, you know, to do with, you know, to do with that gift. And so, please do reach out, um, you know, we could, we'd appreciate, All manner of uh, financial support. Uh, One of the things we're working on right now is we're under contracts to buy a uh, a 6.2 acre lot of land here in Fort Worth with the hope that we're going to be able to, in the next few years, actually build a number of kind of fourplex units um, that we can actually own so we can move away from being tenants. Because at the moment, every unit, housing unit we're using, we're paying, we're just renting. So we want to own our own, build, you know, own our own property, have all our residents living in one location, have our offices in the same place, and classrooms and all of that, you know, um, in one place. So we're in the process uh, of actually kind of, you know, working through the zoning, you know, with the city because we need a zoning change to be able to close on it. So that's something, you know, we'd appreciate prayers on um, over the over the coming months for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, being able to reach us through our website uh, network.net. Um, you know, we're also active on Instagram and Facebook primarily, so you can reach us through there as well as dash network. If you have questions, that's a really good way to, you know, um, reach out to us, but also you can, you know, send an email, you know, from our website, send a note, and we'll always be able to call you and have a conversation, but really, you know, just wanting to, you know, you know we, we need all the support we can get, but, um, beyond that also just hoping that this conversation kind of helps you know people understand better what's really going on you know with um you know asylum seekers and, and and kind of the differences between asylum seekers and refugees and and also um you know just hoping that you know people understand that the conversations are a lot more nuanced than is typically um uh, available in, in in media and in, in conversations just because um you know sometimes i'll hear people talking about well we need to just close down the border and do all this and you know and so some of the solutions that you know that are out there sometimes feel like throwing out the baby with the, the bathwater, and I don't think that's 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 it. So, you know, just wanting people to hear, know, and understand, um, been able to the last the last year or so, you know, in- get involved more in some advocacy work with you know elected members of Congress and things like that. Just hey, look. We need you to understand this and we need you to understand that, you know, we think this could be solved by, you know, just making this one change to the law and just trying to engage as much as we can. And so, again, if you're connected to, um, you know, you're an elected official, maybe that you think, you know, we could have conversations with, uh, we'd love the opportunity to, uh, you know, to to do
0: that. Well, Munazi, thank you so much for the work you're doing. And uh, it was a delightful conversation. So thanks for sharing. And uh, yeah, again, dashnetwork.net. If anybody's interested in following up and uh, we'll love to see, we'll love to throw at least some people and hopefully some resources and help your way.
1: Yeah, that'd that'd be great. Uh, Preston. Yeah. Thank you for your time. This has been great.